0: For the love of home.
1: I'm Alicia Menendez in for Alex tonight. And tonight we got major news in special counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigation into former President Donald Trump's alleged mishandling of hundreds of classified government documents after he left office. Now, you think of that investigation, I'm going to bet that your mind goes straight to the events of August 8th last year. You likely think of the FBI's court authorized search of Mar-a-Lago and of the 100 plus classified documents the FBI found on the premises that day. But that is not tonight's news. No, tonight's news centers on a period of time about two months before that, June 2nd, and why the events of that day may be key to Jack Smith's case. Tonight, The Washington Post described the events that took place that day as being of particular importance to investigators in the classified documents case. We'd previously known that on May 11th of last year, Trump's attorneys received a grand jury subpoena seeking all documents bearing classification markings still in Trump's possession. Then we knew that almost a month later, June 3rd, an attorney from the Department of Justice and three FBI agents met with Trump's lawyers at Mar-a-Lago to collect those documents from Trump's team. Now, we also already knew that at some point between those two dates, boxes of documents had been moved around Mar-a-Lago on the president's orders, and we knew that the special counsel had that on video. What we did not know until tonight was this. The Washington Post reports tonight that boxes of documents were moved into a storage area by Trump's body man, Walt Nata, and another employee the day before the Justice Department came to get the documents. And that does not seem like a coincidence. Quote, on the evening of June 2nd, the same day the two employees moved the boxes, a lawyer for Trump contacted the Justice Department and said officials there were welcome to visit Mar-a-Lago and pick up classified documents related to the subpoena. Tonight, the New York Times adds that the other employee was a maintenance worker and that he and Trump's body man moved the boxes of documents back into the storage room before Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran conducted his own search of the room that day. So Trump ordered his employees to move boxes of documents back into a storage room before his own lawyer, Evan Corcoran, conducted a search. And then later that same day, Corcoran called the DOJ, told him it was fine to swing on by. The following day, DOJ officials came by to pick up documents, as well as a signed attestation written by Corcoran, signed by Trump lawyer Christina Bob, confirming that, to the best of her knowledge, a diligent search had been conducted that they had turned over everything they found. Of course, we now know that was not the case. The FBI later found more than a hundred more classified documents on the premises, even more at a storage site months after that. And one of the key questions of this investigation is, was that obstruction of justice? Was all the weird back and forth, moving of boxes, evidence of Trump trying not to give these documents back? Was him ordering these boxes moved before he had his lawyer search the room and trying to trick his own lawyers. Other than the scale, the sheer amount of classified documents Trump had, the thing that makes Trump's documents investigation such a stark contrast from President Biden's or even Vice President Pence's investigations is the appearance of obstruction. All signs indicate that Biden and Pence immediately and fully cooperated with authorities after being informed they had classified documents in their possession. The same simply cannot be said for Trump. The investigation into Trump here is a criminal investigation. So the bar for proving obstruction, it is high. And we're going to get some expert legal help unpacking all of this in just a second. The events of June 2nd, they weren't the only thing we learned about tonight. No, we also learned that Jack Smith's office has gathered evidence that even before Trump received the subpoena in May, he had what some officials have dubbed a dress rehearsal, removing government documents that he did not want to relinquish. And we learned that Smith's office had been told by more than one witness that Trump at times kept classified documents out in the open. His Florida office, where others could see them, and that he sometimes showed them to people, including aides and visitors. If you put all that reporting together, it certainly looks like Jack Smith is forming a case here. Now, NBC News has not independently confirmed any of this reporting for President Trump, of course, denies he did anything wrong. But this certainly does not look good for the former president. And it does seem like time is not on his side either. Tonight, Bloomberg reports that this investigation is coming to a close and that Jack Smith is poised to announce possible criminal charges in the days or weeks after Memorial Day. Joining us now, Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst and Melissa Murray. She's a professor of law at NYU and an MSNBC legal analyst. Ladies, what a treat to have you both here tonight. We will get to the Bloomberg reporting on the possible timeline of an indictment in a minute. That would be our lead on any other night. But we have this reporting from The Washington Post and The New York Times. A a day before DOJ prosecutors show up at Mar-a-Lago, Trump having aides move boxes into a storage unit. What strikes you?
2: What strikes me is that Evan Corcoran was used by the former president Mm. and perhaps others in his orbit, right? We know from prior reporting that the boxes were actually moved out of that same storage area after the subpoena was served on May 11th. It now appears that someone... Possibly former President Trump took documents out of them, moved the boxes back in on June 2nd. Then that's when Evan Corcoran went in, conducted his search, and that evening called the Department of Justice and said, you guys should come by tomorrow and pick these up. That's because when the Department of Justice sent the subpoena, they said, in lieu of showing up to the grand jury, you can let us know where you found the documents and we will come and get them from you along with that signed certification that we now know was prepared and signed on June 3rd to me about him potentially duping his own lawyer.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Again, making attorneys Mm -hmm. get attorneys. Like, obviously, Evan Corcoran is a legal professional. He has taken an oath. Um, He has professional obligations. He cannot lie for the former president. And so the moving, the reshuffling of these documents, again, that seems like an attempt, and we don't know if it's the case, but it seems very much like an attempt to allow Evan Corcoran to say, in all honesty, that he knows that there's nothing here, even though we know that now Donald Trump may have directed someone else to move those documents out of the place where Evan Corcoran was then going to do a search and then say to the department that everything was clear. So, again, the math isn't mathing here. You don't move (laughs) those kinds of documents um, around with such alacrity. And so frequently, unless it looks like you're trying to do something funny, and that's the TLDR here. It just looks really suspicious. Talk to me then about this idea of a dress rehearsal.
2: You know, the idea of a dress rehearsal comes from an opinion that we haven't seen yet. It's a sealed opinion about the crime fraud exception. That's the legal doctrine that allows a court to pierce an attorney-client privilege. And in this case, Judge Beryl Howell of the D.C. District Court apparently found in a lengthy opinion that Evan Corcoran had apparently been duped by Donald Trump, and that there was enough evidence of possible obstruction by the former president, as well as retention unlawfully of classified documents to justify piercing that privilege. That's the context in which the phrase dress rehearsal showed up. She said, essentially, the way in which Trump and his lawyers had interacted with the National Archives was the dress rehearsal. Remember, Alicia, the first time Trump was notified that the National Archives wanted these documents back, it wasn't last year. It was in May of 2021. And he has been playing footsie, essentially, with the federal government since then about the existence and location of these documents.
1: I'm a dance mom, so dress rehearsal says something very different to me. I want to come back to you on this concept of obstruction, the reporting would seem to bolster the idea that that's the key element the prosecutors are looking at. And the Washington Post reports, quote, people familiar with the situation said Smith's team believes it has uncovered a handful of distinct episodes of obstructionist conduct. That stuck out to me. Episodes. I
3: think Again, more than one. And I'll just say, like, if you are a Dance Moms fan, Abby Lee Miller did have a federal case brought against her for similar kinds of machinations, right? Again, it's never the crime itself. It's always the cover up or moving things around or trying to obstruct the process that's undergoing here. And again, we've seen this play out in popular culture in lots of different ways. Think back to that movie, The Firm, when Tom Cruise is that lawyer who's caught up in like a terrible law firm that has ties with the mafia, and he says to the FBI agent, like, yes, I have mail fraud here. It's not sexy, but it has teeth. It's the same with obstruction. Is it sexy? Is it the same as proving that Donald Trump sold these documents or disseminated them to people who have interest against the United States? Certainly, it's not that sexy. But obstruction is still a federal crime, and it sticks. Well,
1: and it is part and parcel of having a complete disregard for democracy. I'm struck by this idea of the retention of documents, the obstruction piece of this, but then also this idea that he potentially had the documents out,
2: was sharing them with other people. How does that factor in legally? It's a separate violation. So the Espionage Act under 18 U.S.C. 793, for those following along at home, of that statute basically prohibits sharing documents that you have in an unauthorized and unlawful way, and then handing them or disclosing their contents to someone else. We have known for some time that Donald Trump unlawfully retained them. That's another violation of the Espionage Act. But here, when we're talking about sharing its contents, that's something different in kind and degree. If you're sharing them with aides, visitors, possible political donors, or even the foreign countries that we understand of interest to Jack Smith and his team of prosecutors with respect to Donald Trump's business dealings.
1: So one of the questions that we've been asking here is, who is it that's talking? And it would seem from this reporting that in addition to the body man who was moving the documents, you also had a maintenance worker who was cooperating with prosecutors. What is it that that maintenance worker could offer prosecutors?
3: Well, from what we understand from the reporting, the maintenance worker is one of the people on the videotape scene moving it. So he, if it is a he, is obviously someone who's already in some kind of legal jeopardy because he's actually there. There's evidence of him doing this. So he has a lot of incentive, if it is a he, um, to show the prosecutors that he has no intent to move documents. He doesn't know that these are classified documents. And so there's a lot of incentive, I think, for that person to work with the prosecutors to provide as much information. And being on the inside, the kind of person who sees things, who works in the interstices, but isn't necessarily a hotshot, a big job, a big guy at Mar-a-Lago means that They probably observe things that might go unnoticed by other people and are really in a position to provide the kind of inside baseball knowledge that you probably couldn't get anywhere else. The other big news tonight, what folks at home don't see is that we were
1: on our editorial call and all of a sudden Lisa went missing. And it was because there was breaking news from Bloomberg. And so she had to run downstairs to be on television and analyze this. I mean, the fact that we now have potentially some sense of a timeline Is a big development here
2: it is a big development and it dovetails with the washington post reporting in a crucial way tonight the washington post in addition to providing these details about june 2nd and 3rd points out another key date that's may 5th that's the last time the grand jury and jack smith's investigation met it's the day after matthew calamari senior and junior key employees at the trump organization involved in the collection and maintenance of those surveillance tapes on which walt nauta and the maintenance worker are seen moving the boxes, testified before that grand jury. Grand jury hasn't met since May 5th. That's just one more indication that the Bloomberg reporting is likely true, that this investigation is wrapping up and that potential charges could be in the works for Donald Trump and others.
3: And Trump's lawyers requesting a meeting with A.G. Garland? I mean, that's also a sign that there is likely an indictment in the offing. Typically, when you have something coming down the pike, the defendant, the prospective defendant, has an opportunity to speak with the prosecutors in advance to perhaps persuade them that there's nothing to see here. And it seems like this was Donald Trump's Hail Mary attempt to get Merrill Garland to get off this case. Are
2: you surprised by this timeline? No, No. not really. I mean, this is, as Melissa said earlier, there are sexier cases than this, but this is straightforward. And the panoply of evidence and types of evidence that have been collected here that lead to a potential obstruction charge is really substantial. And we've been seeing drips and drabs of reporting indicating that this is coming for some time. So, no, I'm not surprised by the timing. I think what people are surprised by is that this will likely happen before any other indictment, including from... County District Attorney Fonnie Willis in Georgia.
1: The no in sync really gave me such life. Thank you both <laughs> so much for being here. Lisa Rubin, Melissa Murray, what a treat. We have a lot more to get to tonight, including with the stroke of a pen, an entire swath of America has now lost an important right. We're going to explain plus the 2024 Republican primary is underway, quickly turning into a race to the bottom. Jen Saki joins us to break it all down. Is now day two of the Ron DeSantis presidential campaign. After a disastrous, glitch-plagued rollout yesterday, DeSantis spent today trying to turn the page by focusing on his rivalry with former President Donald Trump. In an interview with a New Hampshire radio station this morning, DeSantis attacked Trump for, of all things, being too soft on immigration.
4: He's moving to the left. Um, attacking me, for example, for opposing an immigration amnesty that he supported when he was president uh, for illegal aliens. And I did oppose it because I don't support amnesty.
1: Okay, so what Governor DeSantis is calling amnesty is a 2018 proposal by Trump offering a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants brought to this country as children, often referred to as DACA recipients or DREAMers. But the price for that sliver of sanity would have been a host of draconian cuts to legal immigration and harsh new border enforcement policies. Ultimately, that Trump proposal went nowhere. But now DeSantis is rewriting history to position himself to the right of a man who destroyed families by separating migrant children from their parents. When it comes to DREAMers, DeSantis doesn't exactly have the track record to back up his tough talk. Just this month, DeSantis lost a fight in his home state to deny DREAMers in-state tuition to Florida colleges. Still... DeSantis has made a point of emphasizing his plans for a new immigration crackdown in every interview he's given since announcing his candidacy. And despite his new willingness to attack Donald Trump, DeSantis still finds himself defending the former president amid Trump's ongoing legal challenges. Today, the governor told another conservative radio host that he would be open to pardoning Trump and the January 6th Capitol rioters if elected.
4: Do you think the January 6th defendants deserve to have their cases examined by a Republican president? And if Trump, let's say, gets charged with federal offenses and you are the president of the United States, would you look at potentially pardoning Trump himself based on the evidence that might emerge of those charges? The DOJ and FBI have been weaponized. On day one, um, I will have uh, folks that will get together and look at all these cases. Who people are victims of weaponization or political targeting, and we will be aggressive at issuing pardons.
1: Santis' strategy as a declared candidate is to ignore or excuse Trump's biggest vulnerabilities and differentiate himself by offering a crueler, darker form of Trumpism, if that could even exist. What will that mean for the country as the Republican primary contest officially kicks off? Joining us now, Jen Psaki, former White House press secretary and host of Inside with Jen Psaki on MSNBC. You know, Jen, DeSantis thinks he can position himself to the right of Trump on things like immigration, abortion. He's aligning (laughs) with Trump on one six, which would seem to me like the most obvious place to begin to draw a distinction. And here he was just tonight in an interview on Newsmax.
4: Some of the things he's been attacking me on, I've been a little surprised at because he's attacking me from the left. And that really wasn't the Donald Trump from 2015 and 2016. I mean, he was a hard charger leaning in uh, on all the issues, very edgy on conservative issues. And it was part of the reason he did so well. Uh, But when he's taking Disney's side against
5: me, I just kind of wonder, like, okay, I get he wants to hit me, but don't take the side of a multinational corporation that wants to sexualize kids. He's also hitting me against voting against immigration
1: amnesty. So lots of lies in there. First, will that work to sway Trump voters in a Republican Mm -hmm. primary, Jen? And if it does, and and you got DeSantis as the Republican nominee, what's that then going to do to him with voters in a general?
6: Well, it certainly wouldn't help him in a general election, right? Uh, Because running to the right of Trump on some of these issues, or even to the right in a bizarre way, for example, being on the other side of Disney. I mean, who hates Mickey and Minnie Mouse? I guess Ron DeSantis. But it would not help him in a general election, of course. He's trying to find his path. He's trying to find the way to contrast with Trump. Now, the truth is there is another path that may not prove to be successful, but would be to be a more mainstream, less insane right wing candidate Mm -hmm. Who he, I mean, he could have had the bio in the background to do. He chose not to, he has chosen so far not to take that path. Will it work in a primary? We don't really know yet. I mean, there's no evidence it's going to work. He has only dropped in the polls next to uh, Trump since November when he was probably at his peak at this point. There is still a long way to go, but so far, He has not shown that he knows what his pathway is and one that is going to work to uh, bring Trump voters to his side consistently.
1: Well, to that point today, you had DeSantis saying he'll look at potentially pardoning January 6th defendants. And it seems that is. uh, And Trump and And Trump Trump. and Trump, which which also sort of speaks to the fact that you have his campaign saying, well, his polling numbers aren't exactly where we'd want them to be. But that's because Mm -hmm. the base feels sympathy toward Trump. I mean, is that Good spin,
6: bad spin, like what do you make of that as their defense for their poll numbers? Uh, Well, look, I mean, when you're down in the polls, um, you're always going to try to find some spin and being down in the polls, there's never really great spin. So that's true, uh, no matter what party you're in. But I think the challenge for the DeSantis team is that so far... They hit their peak in November after the November elections, uh, when, of course, Governor DeSantis won by a large margin in Florida. And he was seen as the candidate that many Republicans who didn't think they could quite stand Trump really, they they put all their fears aside and they projected onto him what they wanted him to be. So far, he has not become what they wanted him to be. In many ways, he's a paper tiger. He looks good on paper, less insane than Trump, perhaps, maybe. But so far, he hasn't delivered on that. So the challenge for them is, is this a guy who can stir a room in Iowa, who can get people going in New Hampshire and South Carolina? It's not just about his bizarre and horrendous announcement last night. That was sad. It had it was a big night on Twitter, of course, laughing about it. It's about what happens now. He raised a lot of money can he light the fire under activists in the republican party and we have seen no evidence to date that they have the political skill set to know how to do that but there is a long way to go
1: it strikes me john that the bidens reelect message right out the gate was about freedom more freedom not less one party giving rights another party taking yeah. them away freedom was supposed to be Ron DeSantis's core argument. He keeps bragging about Florida as a, as a bastion of freedom, you know, unless you are a pregnant mm-hmm. woman, a teacher. Has mm-hmm. he already ceded the freedom frame, which, which he wanted to be his, to Biden?
6: Well, I think in part, the Biden team, my old colleagues over there and the campaign are trying to seize the freedom frame from Republicans. It has long been the Republican frame, right? Remember freedom fries, right? Freedom from the restrictions of government, that has long been a Republican frame. So, But where why I think this could work and why it may be working already is that nobody likes their rights being taken away, uh, their rights and access to healthcare, abortion rights, uh, their rights to have clean drinking water, uh, to, for their kids to go to school safely. And that is kind of the feeling with some of these Republican policies. And certainly a lot of what we've seen from the DeSantis agenda. I mean, make America Florida means sick, a, a ban of, uh, of, on abortion after six weeks. It means, uh, concealed carry is allowed. It means you can't have books. It means, uh, diversity uh, is not something he's, that will be, you know, championed in the country. That's what he's running on. And that is taking away rights from people in the country. And even if you're not a hardcore progressive or a hardcore Democrat, that may not sound great to people.
1: Yeah, let's talk about making America Florida again. DeSantis has, has tried to campaign boasting about making Florida a conservative bastion. But now he has to campaign, in, you know, other GOP-led states. NBC News reporting DeSantis has yeah. encountered spirited pushback from competitive fellow governors and GOP officials who believe that their states— have done just as much, if not more, to advance a conservative agenda I mean the the example that sticks out to me is Christy Nome kind of bullying him on this idea that the initial 12 week abortion ban in Florida did not go far enough, then of course you saw them rolling out their nine week abortion ban mm-hmm. if the if the bulk of the next year is Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and a host of other Republicans trying to out-Trump each other, for lack of a better term, how does that change the contours going into a general election if that is most of what voters have been exposed to?
6: Well, that's only a benefit to my old colleagues in the White House who are trying to get current president... Joe Biden reelected because a lot of these positions are extreme, extreme in the country, not just in a democratic electorate, but among independents and even many Republicans. People across the country, 58% of the country thinks abortion, people should have access and a choice to have an abortion if they want to. That's not just Democrats. That includes Republicans. That's in the national poll, NBC, the recent NBC news poll, right? Uh, the vast majority of people in this country, overwhelming majority think there should be universal background checks and more should be done to address gun violence. People think you should have access to health care. These positions, people are not supportive across the country universally of election denying. We've seen that play out in 2022, but we've also seen that play out even in recent months. I mean, the Kentucky secretary of state just last week, but defeated and won running against election deniers. So these right wing, the, the farther right wing and extreme it goes the better that is for Joe Biden. Um, And that's, I think, how you see it if you're sitting in the White House right now. Jen Psaki, former White House press secretary
1: and host of Inside with Jen Psaki on MSNBC. Jen, thanks so much for joining us. Still more to come tonight, including the leader of the Oath Keepers gets the harshest punishment to date for his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. What it was, how he reacted, it's all coming up. Plus, the key to South Carolina Republicans passing an extreme abortion ban turns out to be
4: And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
2: Savings based on cost of Consumer cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with a limited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid and limited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024.
0: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
1: This is how it looked in 2021 when South Carolina's Republican Governor Henry McMaster Signed a six-week abortion ban into law. The first time. He signed that bill, blocking abortions before many people even know they're pregnant. Less than an hour after the State House sent it to his desk. Hundreds of people packed the State House in the middle of the pandemic to watch. The ink was barely dry before Planned Parenthood got a federal judge to block the law temporarily. And just this past January, the state Supreme Court agreed. The only woman on the South Carolina Supreme Court cast the deciding vote and wrote the opinion, striking down that six-week abortion ban as unconstitutional. That is how it went down the first time. South Carolina Republicans tried to enact a six-week abortion ban and failed. But today, it worked. This time, Governor McMaster signed a six-week abortion ban into law two days after the state Senate sent it over. And this time, he signed it behind closed doors, with only five Republican lawmakers watching. No media allowed. In fact, the only images we have of the bill signing came from McMaster's office. This time, the state Senate passed the bill, sent it to the governor after defeating the five women in the chamber who attempted to filibuster the ban. Just like last time, Planned Parenthood and other local providers sued immediately. But this time around, the state Supreme Court is not expected to rule in their favor. Because... The female justice who wrote the January opinion, overturning the last six-week ban, retired. And the Republican-led state legislature voted to replace her with a male justice, making South Carolina the only state in this country with an all-male Supreme Court. If this new challenge works its way up to the state Supreme Court, the odds are the six-week ban will survive. So the people of South Carolina might be stuck with a law that bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy in a state where the only three abortion clinics have appointment backlogs. They try to treat both residents and out-of-state patients. They're stuck with a law that gives victims of rape or incest up to 12 weeks of pregnancy to get an abortion, but requires their doctors to notify local sheriffs and provide victims' addresses. So, that's the bill Governor McMaster signed into law this morning restricting access to abortion in a state that, until now, had become an unlikely destination for women in the South. As a result, this is how abortion access looks right now in this country. With the exception of Virginia, the entire South has now effectively gone dark. Coming up with the debt ceiling deadline just days away. New reporting tonight the White House and House Republican leaders are closing in on a deal to keep the U.S. from defaulting on its bills. Plus, the longest sentence to date for a January 6th defendant one who never even entered the Capitol. Stay with us. It has been nearly two and a half years since members of the Oath Keepers charged into the U.S. Capitol building in a military-style stack formation. And today, a federal judge gave the leader of that far-right militia group the longest sentence in a January 6th case, criminal case so far. Stuart Rhodes will spend 18 years in prison for his role, mobilizing the Oath Keepers in a far-reaching plot to attack the Capitol, keep the loser, the 2020 presidential election, Donald Trump, in power. Last fall, Rhodes was convicted on the rare charge of seditious conspiracy, among other crimes, with fellow Oath Keeper member Kelly Meggs. Meggs was the one leading that stack on the Capitol steps on January 6th. He received a 12-year sentence in a separate hearing today. At Rhodes' sentencing, the former Army paratrooper and disbarred lawyer showed no remorse for his actions, calling himself a political prisoner and asserting that, quote, Like Trump, my only crime is opposing those who are destroying our country. But the D.C. district judge who presided over his trial rejected those claims, saying, quote, You are not a political prisoner, Mr. Rhodes. That is not why you are here. It is not because of your beliefs. The reality is, as you sit here today... And as we heard you speak, the moment you are released, you will be prepared to take up arms against our government. He added, I never have said this to anyone I have sentenced. You pose an ongoing threat and peril to our democracy and the fabric of this country. I dare say we all now hold our collective breaths when an election is approaching. Will we have another January 6 again? That remains to be seen." Joining us now, Danelle Harvin, former D.C. Chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence. Danelle, thank you so much for being here. How significant is Stuart Rhodes' 18-year sentence? Will that be a meaningful deterrent?
5: Well, it's significant and it's a uh, victory for the Justice Department, clearly. They've done a great job in convicting uh, not just the foot soldiers of January 6th, but the captains. And Stuart Rhodes, uh, Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the Proud Boys, are two uh, important pieces of that. Um, in terms of uh deterring future extremism. Um I don't think we're seeing that, specifically on the online space or in social media. In fact, the reason why Stuart Rhodes is able to say in court that he is a political prisoner is because he's parroting uh many on the right in terms of uh elected officials, even in the Hill, uh saying that, you know, him and other January 6 defendants are uh political prisoners as opposed to uh convicted felons, which what they are.
1: And we've spoken with other intelligence experts who talk about the fact that really these groups have gone underground, have actually become harder to track. It strikes me that in previous cases, previous January six cases, Judge Mehta had denied prosecutors requests to apply a terrorism enhancement, but he allowed it in Rhodes charges. How significant is that?
5: Well, the prosecution asked for the inter- terrorism enhancement, which would have gotten Stewart Rhodes uh, up to 25 years. Um, I think that's important because, uh, as you read the January 6th report and you, and you see the, the select committee, this was an act of domestic terrorism, full stop. This fits the exact definition. Of domestic terrorism. And so, if we're not going to charge people who tried to overthrow our government uh, using violence with domestic terrorism, I don't know what we're going to use that statute for. Uh, it's unfortunate that he wasn't convicted, uh, that that add-on wasn't applied to him. Um, but the fact that they brought it up and prosecution wanted to use that, I think, is a sign for those who may want to c- p- commit political violence in the future.
1: To your point about the way in which some of this is being repeated, Kentucky Representative Thomas Massey tweeted, Stuart Rhodes never entered the Capitol and didn't commit acts of violence or destruction. Yet he's going to be sentenced Thursday for seditious conspiracy, obstructing an official proceeding and tampering with docs, then in parentheses deleting stuff on his phone, Weaponization of speech question mark. Kelly megs received a lighter sentence than Rhodes, even though he actually entered the Capitol on January 6th. Rhodes did not. I mean, talk us through the sentencing decisions as you see it.
5: Well, I'm, I'm not an attorney, but um, I'm an avid uh, student of all of this, so obviously, over the last two and a half years. It doesn't matter whether he entered the Capitol, right? Uh, Enrico Tarrio, who was just convicted uh, last week, didn't enter the Capitol. The fact of the matter is, these individuals were masterminds of the plot to overthrow uh, the election process. And so you don't have to physically be there to be pulling the strings on those myriad of individuals, tens of thousands of individuals that were following uh, the cause. And and so the fact that they, once again, these are captains, I actually believe that Stuart Rose isn't uh, intelligent nor uh, sophisticated enough to have pulled this off by himself. I think there are people outside of his organization, well above him, uh, that enabled and insisted this uh, January 6th from happening. And I think that hopefully the Justice Department will start going after those higher level officials.
1: Other Oath Keepers um, convicted of January 6th related crimes are going to be sentenced tomorrow, next week. As someone who's been watching this, do you think that what we saw today might impact those cases?
5: You know, I I hope so. And I hope some of these individuals that saw Stuart Rose get 18 years um, are are evaluating their defense and and hopefully looking to uh, uh, um, to cooperate with prosecutors. Uh, The fact of the matter is uh, that Stuart Rose—we saw Stuart Rose, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, a a month before January 6th, start scheming openly online to overthrow the election process. So, to go into a courtroom and use this kind of, you know, we just got caught up in the moment, this was an organized uh, event, is nonsense. Uh, the, the evidence speaks for itself. Uh, me and my intelligence team, we printed that stuff out. We shared it. We saw it uh, live in time. And so, you can't go into the court now using that defense. Stuart Rose didn't do it, didn't work for him. Uh, he, he tried to do it, didn't work for him, and it shouldn't work subsequently for other defendants.
1: Danelle Harvin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight. We have one more story for you tonight. The clock is ticking on negotiations to raise the debt ceiling with the U.S. set to run out of cash. But there are reportedly signs of movement tonight. More on that just ahead. It is not a done deal yet, but there's progress in Washington tonight in the ongoing negotiations to raise the debt ceiling and avert economic catastrophe. Significant progress, the New York Times is reporting. The top White House officials and Republican lawmakers are closing on a deal that would raise the debt limit for two years, while capping federal spending on everything but the military and veterans during the same time period. If this is indeed the deal we end up with, that is good news for everyone. For one, the debt ceiling won't become a campaign issue before 2025, and both Democrats and Republicans can claim some level of victory. Republicans can say they delivered on their promise to reduce some federal spending while expanding resources for veterans in the military. Democrats, on the other hand, can say they protected most domestic programs from significant cuts. That last part, extremely important because among those most likely to be affected by a default are senior citizens. Today, The Washington Post reported that on June 2nd, a day after the Treasury believes the U.S. could run out of money, roughly $98 billion worth of benefits, including Medicare, Medicaid and military and civil retirement payments, are scheduled to go out to Social Security recipients and people with disabilities. Not making that payment would be devastating to retirees, especially low-income seniors who, on average, don't have the resources to withstand the hit. Quote, in interviews with more than a dozen older Americans who receive federal benefits, nearly all said a delayed payment would have immediate consequences on their ability to pay for housing, utilities and groceries. Many were mapping out worst case scenarios, making plans to do without blood pressure medication or borrow against their homes or return to work. With the prospect of rejoining the labor force after years away made them anxious. Joining us now to discuss former Missouri Senator and current MSNBC political analyst Claire McCaskill. Claire, thanks so much for being with us. Let's get your reaction to tonight's news. How significant is this? We're going to see
7: a deal before the end of the week, you think? Oh, absolutely. I believe there will be a deal. But, you know, Alicia, there's going to be some needle threading that's going to have to go on. Because even if Kevin McCarthy makes a deal, and let's keep in mind, most of us don't want the deal that Kevin McCarthy Mm -hmm. is pushing for. But this has to be a compromise because the Republicans control the House. And the president is really focused on making sure that those recipients of Social Security don't suffer. But what's going to be fun to watch, or maybe painful to watch, is whether Kevin McCarthy can hold his caucus together. How many votes will he lose? And is it possible that he would lose so many votes that it could jeopardize the deal? And if that happens, then I believe the Republicans get all the blame for a default and all the pain that would come afterwards. So this is a real high wire act for Kevin McCarthy because you know he's got a clown car full of uh, a clown car full of crazies that aren't going to vote for this no matter what at That's- least 12 to 20 people let, let's
1: talk about some of the threading of the needle that, that you just spoke about. One of the things the Times is reporting tonight is that the deal they're working on would quote, also roll back $10 billion of the $80 billion Congress approved last year for an IRS crackdown on high earners and corporations that evade taxes. Funding that nonpartisan scorekeepers said would reduce the budget deficit by helping the government collect more of the tax revenue it is owed. that—that That is a lot of congressional speak there. If you could both decipher it for us and give us your reaction to it.
7: They're trying to give McCarthy a fig leaf. They're trying to give him something that will please enough of the Republicans to get this across the finish line. At the same time, they've got to be really careful and protect the priorities of the Democrats. So what this would do is basically they're acknowledging that it's very hard to roll out all of that $80 billion as quickly as the IRS might like to. Um, So they would trim that, they would give that a haircut, and that money would then allow there not to be draconian cuts to the social service programs that the Democrats care so deeply about that the Republicans are happy to cut to smithereens if they could could get it done.
1: It's just so interesting to me that during the Trump years, Republicans looked at the inroads they were making with white working-class voters, and they thought to themselves, maybe what we need to do is position ourselves against corporations, right? That's part of what you're watching with Ron DeSantis and Disney, this idea, that he can pit himself against a corporation, in his case, not against workers' rights or about tax cuts, but instead about an ideological difference. But that is the core of what he is trying to do here. So it is interesting to me that the IRS going after corporations that don't pay their fair share of taxes would be something that Republicans in that mold would not join Democrats in standing up against.
7: Yeah, it's it's funny because Republicans like to say if we only ran government more like a business, think about this for a minute. Can you imagine a, a business being in debt and saying, well, the really smart thing for us to do is not to collect our receivables. Let's not go out there and get the people to pay that are supposed to pay. And that's what the Republicans have been doing to the IRS. They've been basically stripping of its ability to give good service to honest taxpayers who just want to know when they're going to get their refund and decimating the audit staff so that the cheaters are getting away with it. And frankly, the Republicans ought to be all about personal responsibility and making sure everyone is following the law and paying their share.
1: Claire, I, I've only got about 30 seconds left, but if this deal were to go through, it means that, that they would raise the debt ceiling for two years, Me- meaning MAGA Republicans wouldn't have an opportunity to make it a campaign issue until 2025. That is clearly good for the American people. The politics of that?
7: Yeah, I, I think it's really important that, that we are not back here watching this again next spring. Um, we've already seen the Republicans will be irresponsible with this. They're happy to raise the debt ceiling when Trump is in office. They did it a number of times. Trump said, oh, no, you can't mess with the debt ceiling. Uh, so let's let's not give them that opportunity. Let's stay focused on what needs to happen next year, which is protecting people that need it in our country instead of taking care of the very wealthy and then let the election occur. And hopefully that election will allow the debt ceiling to be dealt with in a way that's more responsible going forward. Claire McCaskill, who knows very well what
1: these negotiations look like. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. That is the show for tonight. A reminder, you can catch my show, American Voices, this weekend, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern.
0: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life.